Hi, my name is Sigil Ashraf, and you're listening to Call Me Beta, the podcast where I dutifully check in with my dad, Farasat, and my uncle, Sabahat, who goes by Afakir online. Join us as we invariably end up in animated discussions on current events, social issues, South Asian culture, history, and American pop culture. Note, I refer to my dad as Abu, and my uncle as Chachu. It's family, it's politics, and sometimes it's just family politics. How are you? Fine, how are you? What's um, I'm alright. Uh, hold on one second. Jachu, are you there? Yeah, hello. How's everybody? Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. Uh, yeah, so um, I don't know if you guys, I sent you guys a link, uh, but I wanted to, um, it, I, I've been talking about doing this for like a few days now, um, and I realized, uh, you know, I just realized today that it actually is Black History Month, so it kind of works out. Um, but, you know, it was like, I guess a couple weeks ago that I finally, you know how you, I, I'm sure you guys both have this where like, you have a bunch of tabs open and there's something you've been meaning to get around to reading and then you never just did and then you finally get around to reading it. Um, so I was going through like my old stuff and I came across uh, this um, report by the EJI, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. Have you guys heard of it? Right. I mean, I read the article you sent. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the, so yeah, the Equal Justice Initiative, um, uh, they're, yeah, they're based in... Um, Alabama and Montgomery, Alabama, and their whole thing is about, you know, uh, finding, you know, a racial equity, but specifically with mass incarceration and um, excessive punishments, because that's, I think, the biggest issue, um, the biggest, most pressing issue right now, uh, as we will see, I think, in at the end of this report. So they put out a report a few years ago on lynching in America. Um, I can't remember how I came across this, but I wanted to talk about it because I feel like lately I've, I've run into like a few... Um, I mean, like, just, I guess, taking uh, my courses at, at, at my liberal arts program and just in general, I've been reading a lot about, you know, the history of, of racism in this country, particularly anti-black racism. And whenever I talk to someone, especially someone not black, uh, not, not just white people, but like, you know, the Desis and, 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 you know, Latinos and stuff, like, I feel like I hear comments people make about like, oh, you know, like, like yeah like yeah racism is bad but you know like i don't understand why black people do this or i don't understand why you see this so often in the black community and it's like oh my god it 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 shouldn't be this way that like you have to take a freaking like college level or master's level course to understand systemic racism and institutional racism but um i felt like when i was reading this i was like i feel like i wish everybody could read this report and it's really long, but I wanted to go through it because I thought it'd be interesting discussing it with you guys. Um, Abu, I, I'm curious what, um, uh, you know, I, I was going to say that like, you guys didn't grow up in Pakistan. You guys grew up in Nigeria. So I wanted to ask you kind of a two-part question. One, when you were in Nigeria, I, did you what did you learn about, like, slavery slash lynching or Jim Crow? And, and you know, what is your awareness of what people knew in Pakistan? You know, because I know you weren't there until you were there later. First you, and then I guess Jachu can fill in what he knows too, because I have a feeling he might know more than anyone because he read a lot. <laughs> but, yeah, what about you, Abu? Right, yeah. I mean, you know, when we were um, uh, growing up in Nigeria, because I, I was in Nigeria until O-levels or 10th grade, so, uh, so I left Nigeria no, sorry, what am I saying? Uh, A-level. So I left Nigeria at the age of 18. I, you know, I, I was there from the age of four to the age of 18. So we, you know, we read more. I mean, as far as I can remember, we read more about how 
basically literally the the slave trade as it originated in Africa. So I don't um, remember, re except, you know, of course, you know, uh, both of my parents, both our parents were, um, me and Sabah's parents were, were school teachers and principals and vi at one point, uh, you know, Dadi was a principal and uh, Dada Boo was a vice principal. So we would go to their uh, library and they were both history, right? They both taught history. Yeah. So they would have history books that we would read in American history books. Sometimes we would go and raid the school library and bring home books and read. So I read about American history and, you know, American slavery in those books on my own. But in school and in our textbooks in primary school and secondary school in Nigeria, we read more about how the slaves were captured and how they were put on ships. So the, the, that part of the slave trade and how they would be raids. And so we read more about that. Um, mm. And of course, I mean, come, uh, after coming to America, I mean, I've been in America almost 30 years now. Uh, you know, we read and, uh, you know, we're, we're conscious uh, about, uh, you know, racism and uh, the fact that we are a minority too. And, and then there is racism within minorities and um, I don't know if we're going to cover this or not, but, you know, there is racism and specifically anti-black racism in in Desi communities and Pakistani communities as well. So we are aware of that. And to be very honest, I mean, since you have, uh, you know, gone to college and you have brought up issues and, you, you know, we often have conference calls, me, you and Chachud, we talk about issues, including racism. So I have, I have become more aware of these things. Uh, but uh, reading that article and the other uh, two or three articles that you sent, I learned things there that I was not aware of. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, you know, I did too, and I went to school here. But I, yeah. what, what I wanted to know was, you know, like last time we talked about how, you know, obviously you were living in Nigeria during, um, during apartheid in South Africa. But I was wondering, did you, would you learn about? You, you said you learned about the slave trade from the African point of view. But did it ever come up? like Jim Crow, Jim Crow and segregation, did that ever come up in your like world world history studies or? or no, not, not in school, not in school. But like I no. said, we would, you know, we would read these history books from our parents or from their school libraries. And, uh, you know, we learned about American history from there. Because mm -hmm. I don't, man, Sabahat's Sabahat experience may be different, but I don't remember being taught in school about, uh, you know, American racism or about even even the slave slavery in America. What about you, Chachu? Yeah, uh, again, I actually I, I was enjoying uh, your dad sort of doing the you know unpacking what part of it was school and what part of it was uh, self uh, you know our basically bookworm nature of all of us. But there were other things. You see, this was West Africa, right? Like, as I've said in other you know conversations we've had and podcasted, we had this, there is a certain understanding and sensitivity in West Africa, particularly the areas from which most of the slaves were captured, which is Nigeria and Ghana and, you know, the English-speaking I actually learned very recently that the large majority were from what is now Nigeria. I didn't even realize Well, that. if you only learned that recently, frankly, uh, you haven't been listening to me. Oh <laughs> uh, well, you or you have failed, lot, Sabat, you, This is your failure. Or, or I you failed a lot, man. A lot. <laughs> but but the thing is, you know, Nigeria yeah, is no, no, Nigeria is so populous now. Okay, you know, Nigeria is the biggest black country in the world, and it's probably half the population of West Africa is Nigerian. Yeah, so, right. Sabat, correct me. If, uh, am I right in saying that most of the slaves 
African slaves came from West Africa, right? Senegal, Senegal to Nigeria. Right. So that is the discussion that Bitya is bringing up. I personally feel, and of course, the largest group came from West Africa because that's where. And not just West Africa, but like the large majority was from what is now Nigeria itself. Yes. No, but see, when you get into academic discussions and demographic discussions, people don't want, or the you know the academic you know, powers that be or whatever, the, the conventional wisdom, I don't say conventional wisdom, the actual official numbers, both in terms of what percentage was Muslim and what percentage actually came from what is now Nigeria, I think the official numbers or the accepted numbers are low. Mm. If you just look at the cultural influence, most of the things that we think of as African-American culture that we know have roots in uh, Africa, and even things that we don't think of as having roots in Africa, like breakdancing, for example, a lot of them come straight out of Nigerian, especially Southern Nigerian culture. I mean, voodoo, santeria, you know, and now, of course, actually say Yoruba uh, uh, spirituality is all Nigerian. I mean, the Yorubas are Southern Nigeria with a little bit of, you know, spillover into Benin and uh, yeah, Southwest Nigeria. All, all of that, right? So just, and yet we don't talk about Nigeria in the African-American or American context, right? The only yeah. cultural export we've had is Fela, and even people under a certain age don't know about Fela. So yeah, no, there, is, there is much bigger influence than we think, and a lot of the things that are included are that way. And of course, to your earlier question about what we learned, yeah, so we had this, we got a little bit of school like Bhajan laid out. We got a really, you know, clear study of, of the slave trade, right? And that's where you kind of, when you come to the US, there's dissonance because the American, African American leaders all talk about Ghana and the Gold Coast and the Slave Coast and, you know, the well preserved fort, I think, on the coast <coughs> in Ghana. That's all the emphasis is on Ghana. No one really follows up with Nigeria. Although recently, if you look at my Facebook and all, you see pictures of Malcolm going to Nigeria and interacting with people, Muhammad Ali going to Nigeria and interacting and all of that, right? It really is a big presence. But, okay, so in terms of reading, and I think I've said this before, there was a moment, for example, where uh, one of our school teachers decided that one of the songs we sang marching to our classes from morning assembly would be John Brown's body, right? Right, right. You mentioned that. The Republic. So that kind of, you know, random thing would come up. So to build on Bhaijan's point, some of it was not formally understanding that, but informally and from the zeitgeist and the sensibility that we had when, like your dad was saying, when we came to the US, both because we are brown folks and, and minority ourselves, and because of our Af- Nigerian background, we were more sensitive to these things. And I don't mean that as to praise ourselves. I'm just saying that we would notice these things more. I, and I've said before, I, when Diallo was shot, I was living in the New York area. We all were, right? And I was. there was a moment when it hit me. I'm like, there but for the grace of God, right? The man was born, you know, one country over or two countries yeah. over. Yeah. Uh, uh, wait, so hold on. Um. Basically, uh, I kind of just wanted to, I'm not going to read the whole uh, 
uh, report, uh, but I want, I will uh, read some chunks of it. I'm going to kind of summarize and go through it and we can discuss it. But I did like, uh, I don't know if you saw the Maya Angelou quote at the beginning that um, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again, which I think is a, is a really good quote for kind of like the thesis that we're going to see um, the AGI kind of push forward when we, we you know, when they kind of explain why they're, they want to go into this. But basically, um, you know, there's a whole introduction here that kind of goes over um, what lynching is. So I'm just going to read the actual, uh, what they gave as a de definition. But it says, lynchings were violent and public acts of torture that traumatized black people throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. These lynchings were terrorism. So, and then it says that basically these terror, they refer to them as terror lynchings and they talk about how the, uh, this kind of uh, violence peaked between 1880 after the Civil War and 19, till 1940. Um, and uh, according to the EJI, it says that lynching profoundly impacted race relations in this country. And, you know, they're saying that it shaped uh, 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 not only like um, social conditions, but geographic, political, and economic conditions um, that are affecting the Black community even to this day. Uh, you know, the whole Great Migration, which we're going to get into, happened as, as a result of these lynchings. Um, and, uh, you know, and also the, uh, the, the way the criminal justice system is set up even today is a direct result of this entire phenomenon of lynchings. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and, and so the EGI states that mass incarceration, excessive penal punishment, like, you know, getting completely outside, like, you know, getting life for having weed on you. Disproportionate sentencing of racial minorities and police abuse of people of color reveal problems in American society that were framed in the terror era. And they're referring to this era of lynching as a terror era. Um, and they say that basically and they, they spent six years um, doing this research, uh, thousands of hours of research. And they found that um, the 12 most active lynching states were Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. And I guess out of all of those, the connection we have is uh, to North Carolina, where you are, Abu, right? Yeah. Um, I yeah, don't know if that, that surprises you. Like these are all Confederate states, right? Oh, yeah. Abu, does that surprise you to see North Carolina on the list? No, no. No? No. But then they, they, they also they also supplemented it, you know, with other states. And they said that the eight states outside of it that it's most common was also Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Maryland, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma and West Virginia, which I feel like those are states that are like near south or they just feel like the south. <laughs> well, what about Illinois? What, what the heck is Illinois doing there? Uh, Illinois, outside of Chicago, Illinois is super like white, dude. Like, yeah, it's Midwestern. It's white. Yeah, yeah, it's the Midwest. Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, like that area is, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, you always hear Republicans complaining about how Chicago basically makes them go blue every year. And they get really mad about that. Um, but yeah, so, um, and so I don't know if you guys noticed that the, the, the report, it says that they, they, they're distinguishing race, r racial terror lynchings um, from regular lynchings. You know, they say that this report is about racial terror lynchings. Um, uh, that's different from just hanging and mob violence that follows some criminal trial process. Basically, these racial terror lynchings were, um, they basically were meant to menace and threaten the society. There, there was no, there was no uh, really, 
it wasn't necessarily about punishing a crime. It was really the, the point of it was just terror. Um, you know, and it says we also distinguish terror lynchings from racial violence and hate crimes that were prosecuted as criminal acts. So a lot of these times, you know, these lynchings happen in broad daylight, um, often on the courthouse lawn. It was they were not some sort of frontier justice. It was basically um, something that was happening because the, the criminal justice system that was set up by the federal or state governments was considered too good for for black people. Um, and, yeah, and, so, you yeah, know, really, the definition of terror, right? Terror and terrorism has become so misused. And oh, yeah. frankly, I believe it has gotten misused because, mainly because of uh, government use, right? Because everyone, yep. the government, especially the American government globally, has had this monopoly on media and all, and they've pushed their narrative of it. If you unpack that, refuse to accept that, and go back to the original meaning, terrorism or terror in this case is the use of, you know, violence and threats to intimidate a population. Yeah. You kill one person, that is a murder. But if you kill one person to scare a million people, that's terror. Yeah. Right? And, and also killing think, killing someone who's an armed combatant is not terror. Like a lot of times our government yeah. tries to, you know, say that, oh, like a, a, you know, a whole unit was bombed in Afghanistan and that's, like actual, that's not terrorism, that's war. Yeah, and it could or could not be terrorism. What I'm saying is that's an irrelevant yeah. discussion to it. You talk yeah. about why they're doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, that whole thing about a freedom fighter and a terrorist, one man's freedom fighter and the man's terrorist. No, I don't agree. I'm on the record on that. You can be a freedom fighter and a terrorist or a terrorist. They are two different things. Right. And they can't overlap. But the point here is, like you were saying, they were not all about murder or things like that. The the we hear about, and there've been you know amazing uh, Hollywood movies made about that. That uh, some of it was just people not being able to tolerate uh, white and black folks socializing, you know, getting into a relationship. Oh yeah, we're gonna get into all that <laughs> and um... all of that. So that by definition is not about a crime. It's about putting a certain population, quote-unquote, in their place. You in know, that's place. where the word apity right. comes from. That's right. where the word, yeah. all yeah. of these problematic... And I think we should, in this discussion, and we, we hope to podcast it, we, we are going to use words that are problematic. Apity black, you know, apity... Right, right, right. Well, that, that, that's actually... Crazy, that's, yeah, thanks for reminding me. I, I, I also wanted to note that, so when it comes to the N-word, like with the hard R, so to speak... Uh, I'm not going to say that word because I just don't feel comfortable saying that. I will say N-word, but wherever um, they're quoted using the word Negro because that was the official term used by, uh, you know, uh, anti-racist activists and racists alike. Like, I'm, I'm going to use that yeah. when it's used in quotes. It was um, the default what we say, like, I prefer the phrase folk, right? White yeah. folk, black folk. Yeah, and so, Abu is in North Carolina, so he keeps saying African-American because they still say that in the South. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've had this discussion actually a, a friend of mine who's a you know a high level tech guy in New Jersey when the and when the BLM movement started called me to discuss that you know in the sensitivity training we've had and everything what is the preferred word today because the preferred mm -hmm. word has moved right yeah it has even negro in the last one used yeah the U.S. negro I my understanding is the word negro was initially used as an alternative to the n-word as a nicer yeah. word than the n-word yeah 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 so, no and, and when, I, when I was a kid saying calling saying black people was considered kind of ooh 
Um, and yes. I, and I see like, you know, my siblings in North Carolina kind of react that way. But now for me, like, and my, my, all my black friends prefer black, you know, that's. Yes. And, and that's actually very interesting. And it actually liberates someone like me to say that, you know, a part of me in some ways, I feel African-American because I have roots in Africa, but I am not black. I yeah. don't have the, the experience or the lived experience of being black in this country. I don't have. Uh, roots in you know populations that were enslaved but yeah. i do feel african-american to some extent right as a nigerian right yeah. um yeah so so yeah you know it, it, they say in the intro right here that like in just those 12 states that i just mentioned um between 1877 which is like the end considered the end of reconstruction until 1950 they found 4,804 uh sorry 4,084 racial terror lynchings in just those 12 states with at least 800 more um than uh, you know in, it is at least 800 more than they had previously found um so they did a lot of work to find uh, stuff that wasn't previously reported um but yeah like i said they basically start this report starts um back uh, at secession in 1861 so um uh you know that's when the you know 11 southern states acceded to form the confederate states in 1861 they declared the civil war um and have you guys heard of the lost cause myth i don't think uh, so. no but i i wanted to add something to what you said Lynchings didn't start after the war, right? There's uh, either this no, article they, or some other one. We're going to get into that. Uh, it, be, right? it started to take on a racial characteristic the way it did during right. Reconstruction. No, gonna, even, we're going to get into that. Even racial terror lynchings didn't start after the war, right? The people did uh, do that. And also what you just read out from the, uh, from the note, I think it needs to be stressed that when we focus on these 12 states, that is saying these are the 12 worst. Yeah, exactly. Yes, didn't yes. happen. In this fact, this is where it was basically of, a genocide, yeah. The last sentence of that paragraph says that EGI yeah. has also documented more than 300 racial terror lynchings in other states during yeah. this time period. Yep. Yep. Because I, as, as I, I think I mentioned this before, every time I go downtown San Jose, San mm -hmm. Jose, California, the heart of Silicon Valley, one of the major squares in the middle of town, I used to live not far from there, mm -hmm. is St. James Square, which has a plaque marking the last lynching in California which happened there in 1933. 73? Uh, 1933. Yes, that's the point. This okay. is, let's not, we do want to point out where it was worse, but yeah, we need to point out, like we saw with Illinois, that this was happening all over the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but basically, so the lost cause, um, I, so, I, uh, you know, when I wasn't, so I went to school, like elementary school I did in Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Then I did middle school and high school uh, in Bridgewater, New Jersey. And so, you know, I'm very much raised in the Northern education system. But even then, I kind of got mixed messages learning about uh, the Civil War growing up. Like I literally, some years, like I feel like in elementary school, they were like, oh, it was about slavery. Then in middle school, they were like, no, it was about states' rights. And maybe this is my teachers. Maybe it's the curriculum. I don't know. Um, but I kind of had to do it with some of my own reading and my own to kind of realize what exactly was the issue here. But there's the problem is that there's this lost cause of the Confederacy, often referred to as just a lost cause, that is like this mythology that has been pushed, especially in the South, but even in the North, where like, you know, whereas in Germany, uh, I think uh, in, at least at the institutional level or in, you know, if you were to talk to a German politician or the government, like Nazi Germany was considered a shameful past. And, you know, there's laws about having swastikas up and having mm -hmm. the flag of the Nazi German regime up and everything. Um, but like in America, you have Confederate statues everywhere. And even like basically 
it's this this lost causes that instead of the confederates being seen as traitors that tried to tear this nation apart and tried to stand for you know the most awful institution like in the world um that they were actually they had a just cause and there were these like you know these tragic heroes that just you know it was a lost cause no matter how hard they fought no matter how good they were that at the end of the day they were you know just taken down by northern aggression that was you know going against their state's rights and you know and 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 you know you know these these northern carpetbaggers came down from the uh from the north to exploit reconstruction and everything so um and that's actually untrue like you'll even hear it now in the news that oh no the confederates they were you know when you see these people you know waving their flags they're like no it's about our heritage and it's about the confederacy, and the confederacy wasn't necessarily about white supremacy but literally so there's a thing called a cornerstone speech and and this the egi refers to it uh, right here at the beginning of this report um that basically uh you know the uh, alexander stevens who was the vice president of the confederate states he basically delivered a speech that it's considered the cornerstone speech because he literally says um the quote is uh you know that the, the you know the, the ideological cornerstone of of their new government is that it's that the negro is not equal to the white man and that quote slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and moral condition i mean this is literally the vice president of the confederate states of america saying this is what we're about this is why we're going to war period i mean so the lost cause isn't it's not just a myth it's a straight-up lie you know um and, and it includes that whole oh yeah the slaves were treated well and and you know like a lot of slaves wanted it to stay that way and we even kind of get some of that bs in the north as students and whatnot and so um basically i i the way i put it is that you know you hear two narratives that oh the war was it was to, to you know for economics or it was to preserve the union always oh, preserve slavery i always put it this way that actually neither for the south it was about slavery for the south they were fighting to preserve slavery for the north it was not about slavery it was about preserving the union and i and I, i'm sure abu maybe this might be one of the parts you were talking about but like literally in this in this report they say that abraham lincoln on a personal level he did not like slavery but he was not anti-abolitionist and he actually he rejected when the abolitionists would ask him to go for immediate emancipation he thought mm. instead we should go for a more gradual way and then do vo basically voluntary colonization and we would you know encourage freed black people to leave and go to america and that's actually how liberia was, uh, was founded Go back, go back to Africa, you mean? Go back, literally, go back to Africa. That was what Lincoln believed in, and right. and he literally, they even the House of Representatives passed a resolution right after the Civil War started, emphasizing that no, we are not going to war to get rid of slavery. We're going to war to preserve the Union. They very again, this is all documented. Is basically my point. Right. So um, yeah, I, BT, I might want to jump in here and say a couple yeah. of things. One is that at that point, it became clear that slavery was no longer tenable. I yes. mean, I think someone like Lincoln would look at it and say slavery is no more tenable. And it's not something I like anyway. He wasn't, like you said, he wasn't very much against slavery. He just, he thought it was a bad thing. And we have this kind of behavior. And this is where this kind of discussion becomes relevant to this day and age, right? Even on issues like the Palestinian issue and others, you have people who say, yeah, I agree with the principle, but I'm not... And they show by their actions and everything that they're not willing to take a stand for it. They're not willing to actually push for it. Right? So, here's, so here's my point is that the, the, the slavery not being tenable is not a conclusion that he came to until during the war. And it says right yeah. here, 
You see that sentence in the, in, the, in the report. It says, as the Civil War dragged on, however, increasing numbers of enslaved African-Americans fled slavery to relocate behind Union lines. And so the right. cause of emancipation became more militarily and politically expedient. They actually realized that we, you know, uh, first of all, the fact that so many of them came to the, to the North, they saw that actually if we free the slaves and have them fight for us, that can help us on a military level. That was a big uh, push right. behind there was that. And then, of course, there was also the whole matter. And that's where, you know, the process through which slavery was made illegal becomes relevant. Like you said, it was, uh, you know, that I, like Vajan was saying, you learn a lot of things when you start working with your kids and all, mm -hmm. is when I realized that there were certain states that didn't secede from the Union. Yeah. And yet we're yeah, slaves. Yeah, and that's what it says right here, that basically he did the Emancipation Proclamation January 1st, 1863, and but that proclamation did not apply to the 425,000 yeah. or so people living in Tennessee, right. Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland. Because that proclamation was about enemy property. It was not about making slavery illegal. Exactly. A president cannot do that kind of thing in the U.S. Right. right? So, and that's, you know, interesting. And, and people outside the U.S. sometimes don't understand the process. Well, frankly, Americans don't understand the process as much to see that this is not the kind of country where a president can get up and say this is law. No, it had to be done in a certain way. There had to be an amendment to the Constitution, all of that, right? Right, right. And, uh, although one thing you said earlier I also wanted to get into is carpet bagging did exist. Yeah, but, oh yeah to some extent, but they also exist. Right. Right? Well, what is carpet bagging? Yeah, we, we discussed this, I think, some other time. You've read the book, The Carpet Baggers, right? The Sydney, Sydney Collins or John Collins or someone. It's a word we use in, in English now, uh, where we say a ca carpetbagger is someone who takes of a advantage of a bad situation and comes in and, and you know, uh, makes a, takes advantage. It's immoral, you know, unethical people, but they're just taking advantage of an otherwise, uh, of whatever situation there is. And it comes what is, from what, that history. What is carpetbagger in this uh, context? In this point, the way, the reason the word carpetbagger was invented was, the, the myth was, you know, it's like that welfare queen myth. The myth was that a lot of people from the North came down South to take advantage of this whole situation of the North having, quote-unquote, conquered the South. And they would come and do things and take advantage of that you know, the, the police laws and the military situation and all of that, that the North had imposed on the South. And because at that point, you know, former Confederates couldn't do certain things. So these guys became part of the government. They would, you know, it's like a third world Probably situation. Where they people, everything, yeah. Right. And take advantage of a fluid situation. You know, what in, in this day and age, what was that phrase? Katrina Van den Heuvel uses uh, disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism. I don't know. Yeah. No, and also, so I actually, no, it's but, Edmund, let me, let me yeah. finish explaining why carpetbagger. The legend was that when they traveled south, they would have these big pieces of luggage made out of carpet, carpet bags, basically. They would be carrying carpet bags. So they started being called carpetbaggers. And that has now become a, you know, a concept, general concept in the English language. Yeah, like, like uh, it's also kind of still used specifically that way. Like Amar and I actually just caught up on Ozark uh, with Jason Bateman and Laura Linney. And um, basically the premise is that they're they're uh, they're involved with the cartel and they're from Chicago. And then 
basically things happen and they end up having to move to the Ozarks in Missouri mm -hmm. and, um, you know, to kind of like start money laundering there. And someone refers to them as a carpetbagger, like because they're kind of coming from the northern side down to Missouri and they're kind of, you know, trying to make money and, and you know, uh, benefit themselves, which is a very specific. It still is sometimes used in that specific south of northerners moving to the south or, you know, how like, you know, like hipsters moving to gentrify kind of. In exactly. Kind of way. exactly. Yeah. In, in fact, it, it, it's 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 about gentr it's a good way to describe people who gentrify just for the benefit of gentrifying yeah. and how they do it. There was there's a certain immorality or uh, amorality that is associated. With that yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yeah, so, um, you know, yeah. So like, obviously, so at this point, like, um, you know, and then most of the Confederate states where the, that Emancipation Proclamation did apply, um, I mean, obviously they, they were going to resist right so a lot of southern planters they they would hide the news from their uh the people that they had enslaved um and and the slavery and it, the slavery remained like the status quo until way after like 1863 um you know and uh it, it says here and, and so like a lot of southern whites were insisting that you know actually this they did say that actually that executive order is illegal and that you know you can only like Josh, you just said you can only ban it by legislature or court so um they did a lot of ways you know they, they would try to keep their slaves from leaving plantations they would lie to their slaves and that's uh that's why we have juneteenth right because juneteenth is not a celebration of the emancipation proclamation it's a celebration of when a lot of slaves found out particularly in i think texas that they were yeah. now free parts of uh, texas that's, yeah yeah on on 19th june yeah. uh whatever the year was yeah yeah so um so yeah so yeah we basically they didn't uh nationwide they didn't codify it until uh december 1865 with the 13th amendment um and even then i you know I, I living in delaware i was a little surprised to see this that basically uh a lot of some states didn't even ratify it right away and i guess this is more symbolic than anything mm. which is troubling to me but delaware didn't ratify it until 1901 Kentucky did not ratify the 13th Amendment until 1976, and Mississippi didn't ratify it until 1995, which is after I was born. And then, yeah, and the other one is after I was born. But I think Delaware was one of the uh, one of the border states. Right? Yeah, it was the like one... basically one of the places. That's one of the states that's listed here as you know the proclamation did not apply to the slaves. Right, in... and yet there was enough white supremacy and and all of that in their what do you call it in their politics that they didn't want to ratify that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going back to the Civil War, let me ask you a question that might be simplistic. So if you're saying that the South was was fighting to uh, preserve their way of life or to preserve slavery, you know, the Union is saying that we're fighting to preserve the Union but not end slavery, then so what... Uh, I mean, the whole point of the South seceding was uh, was to uh, meant you know because the to preserve slavery, right? Well, so yeah. So the reason the reason they said that was because Abraham Lincoln was elected, and they thought. I mean, it's it honestly reminds me of Republicans today. Like you know how Republicans freak out and call Biden a socialist, even though like God, we wish he's nowhere near a socialist. <laughs> but like just because Abraham Lincoln was not explicitly pro-slavery, they freaked out and they were like, "Oh, this dude is going to get rid of slavery. We're leaving." Yeah. Right. So the thing is, see, the argument they are making, I'm not saying I agree with it, is to raise that issue and say that, oh, we, the, the union, the federal, federal government does not get us, get to tell us when to end slavery. I mean, that would be sort of the, you know, that lost cause argument that they make in the state rights. Right, right. Yeah. Made, right. But of course, 
the fact that they chose to do that on this specific issue and not on others is kind of the point. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, Lincoln, because Lincoln was like, basically not like he was a little too uh, in favor of Abby, it was a little too anti slavery for them. Basically, he wasn't even that anti slavery, but he was a little too anti slavery. So they were like, Nope, that's it. We're seceding. And then that's and, and that's where the exactly. basically the North was like, Whoa, 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 where are you going? No, stay here and ha war, right? So, what what triggered the civil war then? What triggered the South to de declare uh, Abraham Lincoln's election? Him winning the him, yeah. Him winning that election. Basically, they didn't trust him to not be anti uh, Yeah. Um, didn't trust him to not be an abolitionist, right? Because it, it, because there's history here, right? The whole thing, the, you know, what was it? The Missouri Compromise. And I mean, there it, was, it, there was it, things it, happening that led to that moment. I mean, it's very similar to the fact that, you know, like uh, we saw how a lot of racism and, uh, and uh, a lot of white, how a lot of people reacted to Obama being elected, despite the fact that um, <laughs> Obama himself ha has been criticized for actually not being pro-black enough. I mean, a lot of black activists yeah. criticized Obama for not doing enough about police brutality and about mass incarceration and all that. And yet we saw what how, how a lot of, um, you know, the white lash, as Van Jones said, that that happened as a result of just him being elected. Right. right. No, and that's the point. That's the point. And this, by the way, happens. And again, I, I keep wanting to see relevance to this day and age, which sort of kind of raises that question you raised, Vitya. It's, it's becoming a long conversation. You know, that thing about why is this relevant to the rest of us? And yeah. that in this case, it's also a parallel where it says uh, there are lots of topics nowadays. A lot of people take that kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of position. Whether it yeah. is on the on BLM, police brutality, you know, police dysfunction in the U.S. as I might call it, the Palestinian yeah. issue, where people say no, but this and that, and on principle it should be this, and because they're basically making excuses, either because they yeah. don't want to get involved or they hold the opposite. Position. No, yeah, a lot of a lot of Republicans paint President Biden as if he's you know all for like you know burning down police stations when when the rest of us are like, wait a minute, he's pro police if anything. What are you talking about? So it's kind of a similar. <laughs> Phenomenon. Um, yeah, but, but see, also... actually, Biden is a very good example. He, he uh, throughout his, you know, a parallel to like you were talking about Lincoln, throughout his career, he has not been uh, this strong or actually often has been on the wrong side of these discussions, right? right. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, busing, for example, famously as Kamala, you know, <laughs> Kamala Harris yanked his chain on that, that he was a support supporter of Bus. I mean he, he wrote the bill on uh on the right. crime bill, right? Yeah. But at this moment, and that's what I was saying, you can't separate the two. He knows it is a moment in history where he has to lead the nation away from a Trumpian America. Yeah. Right? So yeah. he's doing it. And that's how I see Lincoln. Yeah, it is it is very similar, yeah. So um and also this is I this, I want this to be a long discussion because I think I think oh. there's a lot of a lot of uh, conversations, especially among um, us non-white uh, people of color, that I think we're just not sitting down and thinking certain things through, um, and, and and we'll get more into that. But but yeah, so um, again, I'm just gonna I'm not gonna like read the whole thing, but another part I wanted to read because uh, I thought they put it well was that basically the legal instruments that led to the formal end of racialized chattel slavery in America 
did nothing to address the myth of racial hierarchy that sustains slavery, nor did they establish a national commitment to the alternative ideology of racial equality black people might be free from, uh, sorry, of racial equality, sorry, I kept reading there. But basically, yeah, that this is kind of like the um, thesis of the first part of this of this report, that, you know, yeah, we ended slavery, but none of the way we did, like, and the way it was ended just shows us that actually white supremacy was, honestly, slavery ended in, like, in spite of the presence of white supremacy, not because we ended white supremacy, um, you know? Yeah, and when you talk about parallels, reading the article you sent, there is a little matter that basically the there were not one but two amendments that came out of that situation, right? One was the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. Hmm. Then there was the 14th Amendment. Wait, yeah, right? we're going to get that in a sec, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, let's get there because that is actually the yeah, most directly relevant thing to brown people like us. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to get there in a sec. But yeah, so yeah, so it says here, at, at the Civil War's end, black autonomy expanded, but white supremacy remained deeply rooted. The failure to unearth those roots would leave black Americans exposed to terrorism and racial subordination for more than a century. So basically up until, um, you know, we have the Civil War. Um, so yeah, so then basically, so Reconstruction happened um, right after the Civil War. That, that period is called Reconstruction because when that's when they were reconstructing the South, so to speak. So Congress establishes the Freedmen's Bureau um, in, in March of uh, 1865. They have a whole mandate that basically the Freedmen's Bureau's uh, purpose is to provide these formerly enslaved people with their basic necessities, um, you know, get them, uh, you know, kind of all set up and make sure that they're, you know, get, you know, get proper treatment in the former Confederates states confederate states but they they congress gave them no budget and basically the staffing and funding was left to the war department of president andrew johnson now johnson himself was a unionist but he was a former slaveholder from tennessee um he was uh, uh, Lincoln's vice president. Yeah, yeah. So he, and yeah. So when Lincoln was assassinated, he became president. Exactly. So he became president right after the assassination, and so he promised that he was going to punish these traitors. But instead, um, he issued seven thousand pardons to the Confederates in eighteen sixty six, and there were there was they had given a promise of these orders granting tracts of land to black farmers that they had confiscated from the Confederates, and and Johnson actually took back those orders instead. Um, and so in this actually in this right here is basically where it starts that like that um, lack of reparations, because, um, you know, now these people could not build their own farms because on top of not being given um, the land that they have been working on for no pay for so long at this time, white people were refusing to give them credit. So now basically black people had no way of getting land without government assistance. Um, and so instead, what uh, Johnson does do is he starts advocating for sharecropping. Um, and I, I don't know, did you know about what sharecropping was before any of this? No, I had heard the word a lot, but I read the definition when I read this article. Yeah, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of feel like I see it like a, like feudalism, right? Like it's the, it, it was mm -hmm. the primary source of their agricultural label, labor that basically um, in exchange for working on land owned by a, a white person, um, I mean, these black laborers would get a share of the crop minus cost for their food and lodging. And, and they would literally just be living in the same um, slave quarters. That, so it's basically the same conditions as before. And and a lot of times, um, you know, under the Johnson administration, landowners had to pay back the banks first. So, you know, before they could do anything else. So they ended up not even paying um, their workers. So basically, once again, we're putting banks over people and these black people are working the land for white landowners for no pay. So in a lot of cases, there's basically no change in the status quo. Um, 
but yeah and so um also yeah so yeah so johnson also he's against voting rights um you know uh, uh, A lot of white people, even of, of, you know, like more progressive backgrounds, they they decided, no, voting is a privilege. It's not a right. Um, you know, Johnson thought that black people were inherently servile and unintelligent. Uh, and it, basically, like it's, it's still at the presidential level, even after Lincoln, we have a president who is um, who sees black people as lesser than he literally thinks that they're going to, you know, we're going to relapse into barbarism because they they can't do government. Um, you know, and he literally said that giving black people the vote would result in a tyranny such as this continent has never yet witnessed. And I feel like I feel like that's kind of the kind of vibe I get from people who are against the Voting Rights Act today. They literally are like, oh, if we allow people to if we pass the Voting Rights Act, we're going to be like, I mean, they basically say the same thing. They don't say it in, as explicitly as Johnson said, but they're like, oh, you know, we're just going to be under socialism and tyranny and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. I felt like I, I saw echoes of that, but um, but yeah, so um, uh, but yeah, uh, so yeah, so then that, that, that and that's basically when we start seeing um, uh, you know, uh, violence against black people to kind of put them in their place, like you said. Um, so in 1866, like I guess in uh in Memphis, there was one point where black uh, uh black officers were firing into a crowd of men, women, and children. Um, and and then um, white mobs rampaged through the neighborhoods. to kill every Negro and drive the last one from the city, uh, it says. And so over three days, they killed 46 uh, black people. Um, they burned down 91 houses, four churches, 12 schools, at least five women are raped, and uh, a lot of black people fled the city permanently. Um, basically all, uh, all just, you know, in response to basically these new conditions where black people are, are definitely not being given the vote and, and all that. Um, yeah, a lot of these things just remind us of look. Andrew Johnson and and other people after I guess Lincoln was assassinated, they, they kind of hijacked that whole process and basically almost negated it to the point where sharecropping even actually became almost like slavery. So they did they the slavery had ended, but the black people were still not, you know, they were still not free or they were still not considered equals. Yeah, 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 no, and then basically, and it says just three months later in New Orleans, uh, the, the report talks about, um, you know, basically, so I guess in New Orleans, there was a bigger um, free population. So there was actually a group of African Americans, a lot of them who were free before the Civil War, um, and they tried to have a, a, a state constitutional convention and talk about, you know, getting, getting voting rights for black men and getting rid of these, um, they're called black codes, they were these racially discriminatory laws. That's all it was. They were literally just trying to have a constitutional convention. Um, it was July 30th, 1866. And um, they ended up clashing with these white opponents in the streets. And so the mob started firing on, on the marchers. They were killing uh, supporters of the convention and these random black passersby, bystanders. Um, and then the, white, the cops come, we're all white, and they start attacking um, the black residents with guns, clubs, axes, and they start killing uh, several people, arresting people. Um, and then they, they, bring, they had to bring in federal troops to suppress the, um, you know, this white insurgency. And at the end of that, by the time they managed to get everything under control, you had 48 black people dead and 200 people wounded. Um, just because they were, you know, trying to convene to talk about having uh, voting rights. Uh, yeah, so the thing here is, what I see here is that a lot of the things that happened during that period are still, or one could even say some of them actually are again happening today. Oh, yeah. The pushback on voting rights, 
the you know making black folks unreasonable the whole thing about letting them live here or there you know the redlining that banks were doing which i think is technically illegal now but you still have that problem <laughs> even down to silicon valley resumes right oh yeah i mean the whole thing about the same guy if you sent the same resume with a white sounding name versus a black sounding name whether they get hired or not so you yeah. know that's one thing that actually completely happens and like you mentioned we need to get to the 14th amendment but also sort of an overview of what happened after the civil war right now correct me if i'm wrong and expand it but there was a period under in which the south was under martial law basically right. yeah then they passed some laws and constitutional amendments that they wanted to reconstruct the south that's actually what we are talking construction, about right yeah yeah. Reconstruct the South in a better image, so to speak. Yeah, right. and that, that, that's what we're talking about, what's happening right now, yeah. Right. Then came a period where due to compromises and everything, all the good stuff of reconstruction was undone. Yep, we're going to get into that. So, yeah, but let's sort of, you know, have that overview, especially for an audience, that this is the stages in which this happened. Mm -hmm. And that thing where, a re, a, you know, reconstruction was undone, basically lasted from 1877 to 1960, what was it, when the civil rights uh, law passed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the big picture, right? And yeah. then in the middle of all of that, we can talk about specifics. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, I kind of, I did, but I did want to get into the picture of a painting step by step what exactly happens with reconstruction, because even in my own, you know, uh, elitist northern education, like, I got such mm -hmm. a quick overview of all this. But basically, I mean, and I, like, I didn't know, like, what I'm about to talk about, I did not know this even happened. But, ba mm -hmm. you know, so all of these attacks that are happening, it's because the midterm elections are coming up in 1866, right? So in 1866, mm -hmm. this, this is the time when the Republicans were actually the party of racial equality, uh, relatively speaking, and the Democrats were the, you know, of the dominant in the South, they were the ones that were super racist. Um, so the Republicans win like a landslide victory and they gain like a majority, like a veto veto proof majority. They have control of the entire legislation. And so um, they pass the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gives a black uh, Americans full rights, full civil rights as citizens. Um, and Johnson tried vetoing the bill, but um, Congress, uh, for the first time in history, uh, Congress overrode the president's veto. So then they, they quickly passed the 14th Amendment, which, um, you know, I'm just going to read quickly here uh, from the report. Um, basically, uh, the amendment established that all persons born in the country, regardless of race, were full citizens of the United States and the states in which they resided, entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizenship, due process, and the equal protection of the law, like, which, like you said, is very relevant to us. Yeah, it's one of the most fundamental things when people say, oh, how does this affect us? Yeah. That argument some of us make about the fact that it is we benefit from the struggle that African-Americans have had for their rights. This right. is the most direct, most immediate and most personal example of that. Yeah. So basically they were trying to pass this 14th Amendment, but so they needed 37 states uh, to ratify it. Um, 
and uh sorry they needed 20 28 of the 37 states to ratify it mm. but uh the the uh, basically 10 of the 11 former confederate states rejected it overwhelmingly i mean louisiana all all of their uh, legislators uh rejected it and so um again over president johnson's veto congress passes the reconstruction acts of 1867 and that's what imposed the military rule on the south and it basically this act required that any state that wants to come back into the union has to first ratify the 14th amendment so it, finally, in July 1868, we get the amendment uh, passed. Um, and so that Reconstruction Acts also granted voting. They actually granted voting rights to black men as well as disenfranchising former con Confederates, which I had no idea. I didn't even know that at any yeah. point that the Confederates actually lost the vote at one point. And so that's new. Yeah, yeah that's really huge for the South, right? The, the, I always wondered about that, but didn't know they. So, yeah, so and I thought that basically there was an, apparently there was an attempt. You know, there was mm. an attempt, and 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 that means that people in government they knew that this is what they should have done because they did do it. Um, and so basically, these uh black black voter turnout near ninety percent, um, and so a lot of places black voters, you know. Wherever black voters were the majority, um, they elected both black and white leaders, right? So, um, and you know, we so now in this era, we see more than six hundred uh, black people. Most of them who were actually formerly enslaved were elected uh, to their state legislation legislatures, and um, we had eighteen black people uh, rise to uh, become state executives, uh, like lieutenant governor, secretary of state, superintendent of education, and treasurer. Louisiana saw their first black governor, uh, PBS Pinchback, in 1872, and he would be the last black governor until 1990. Um, See, that, one second. Yeah. That's the kind of thing when you think about it. Yeah. Whenever we talk about a first, especially in politics in America, you know, the first time a black person becomes a governor or this or that, yeah. we always talk about this is the first since Reconstruction. The fact that we can't say this is the first comes from here, right? Yeah, because yeah, and I think a lot of people... During Reconstruction, there was a lot of that happened. Yeah, a lot of people miss that, because even when it is mentioned, yeah. it's mentioned very quickly. You know, like, I've, I've, yeah. I didn't really realize that until going through this report. So, so yeah, so these Reconstruction states ended up sending 16 uh, people to the U.S. Congress. Uh, Mississippi ended up uh, electing their first black senators, Hiram Revels and Blanche Bruce. Um, so, you know, we have this, basically this, uh, super progressive, uh, racially integrated reconstruction government starts, you know, at the state level, they just start doing like amazing stuff. They start repealing these, these black codes. They're rewriting these statutes about vagrancy and apprenticeship. They're outlawing corporal punishment. Um, uh, the number of capital offenses are going way down. Uh, you know, we, we see black people getting elected to, uh, positions like sheriff and chief of police, and they're finally able to serve on juries. Um, and but even then, um, you know, even then, like social equality is like dividing the even the Republican Party. Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, they while, you know, progressive white uh, leaders and black leaders wanted to get rid of white supremacy overall. You're still seeing a support for white supremacy on the conservative side. Um, and so um, this part, uh, tell me what this sounds like to you. Because nearly all black voters supported the Republican ticket in every election, the party began to take Friedman's votes for granted and shifted <laughs> its attention toward courting more moderate white swing voters. Um, and basically, in addition, the Reconstruction governments faced a crisis of legitimacy as their efforts to attract capital to war-torn southern state economies raised accusations of corruption and graft. So, I don't know, does that sound familiar about focusing on your moderate white voters instead of your that, actual base? That, that's the Democratic Party of today. That is the Democratic Party of today. Yeah, I know. And Wild. Not just the Democratic Party. It's 
you know, this is a political model that works, you know, comes up in a lot of other places. I mean, speaking of lynching, the other country that is dealing with this right now is India. Yeah. And through a, right. And through a lot of their history, the relationship between the Congress party and Muslims, or at least a good significant chunk of their Muslims, has been exactly that. Hmm. And the mess we have in India right now also comes from that. Right, right, right. Yep. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, so, and then um, among all this, obviously, violence is going up. And so you start to see um, these disparate, quote unquote, social clubs of former Confederates are getting together. And they're basically forming these paramilitary organizations. And they're bringing in like thousands of members from every part of white society. It's not just, quote unquote, trash that's mm. joined. Um, and so and so the report says that collectively and with a tacit endorsement, tacit was the wordle, the last wordle word, a couple wor wordle words ago, <laughs> the tacit endorsement of the bro a broader white community, their members launched a bloody reign of terror that would overthrow reconstruction and sustain generations of white rule. Um, yeah. And so that's basically that's where our good old, uh, you know, uh, we start seeing that, um, the, you know, the Ku Klux Klan start to pop up and all that. So. Um, you know, the report goes on to mention, I thought this was interesting, that they basically mentions this, um, this white woman in Paris, Texas, actually wrote a letter to President Johnson telling him, this is in 1866, she said that, like, you know, the whites were so mad about losing their slaves that she, they were, quote, trying, they're quote, trying to, quote, persecute them back into slavery. And she says, she, she wrote to him that black people are often run down by bloodhounds and shot because they do not do precisely as the white man says. And, and this letter that she writes to him is very indicative of what observers in the rest of the country saw. Um, right, so a couple of things here. Yeah. One is the fact that uh, you got to love presidential record keeping, right? Right. And the other thing for all the, you know, imperfections of the system. But the other thing is also this raises that issue, which is also things today where people say, oh, uh, people then might not have realized what's happening. People might not have known, you know, which comes up today in other issues. Bullshit. Right? <laughs> what was that? Uh, I, was, I was just singing bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it comes up in lots of places in, in, in this country and abroad. It's like, oh, they didn't know any better. Oh, no, yeah. they, they, they I was watching a documentary on Netflix about the Holocaust, uh, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically they were interviewing people. Yeah towards the end that were part of you know the the gestapo or the ss or hitler youth mm -hmm. um and and literally like multiple people in the documentary um you know the, he's talking to some and a lot it's called uh actually i forget what it's called but uh basically he's talking to them and some of them are straight up like oh no, oh yeah like i saw this but but it wasn't me like it was other people and then there was actually a group of old women that they were talking to because they they were from a town where they had um a concentration camp or you know basically the 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 giant ovens where they were mm -hmm. burning and one lady was like oh i had no idea and the lady next to her is like everybody knew we all saw it we saw the smoke coming out every single one of us knew and and you saw that in just right in nazi germany you saw this and afterwards of course from the shame no, but see yeah, nazi I, germany itself but i'm also talking about for example u.s official them knowing or didn't know, oh, right? yeah. that related to that ship they turned away full of Jew jewish refugees coming to the u.s yeah, yeah, yeah. At the height of the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. No, you could say, oh, they didn't know people, it. They oh, didn't I didn't know about this. Part of... Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Right. So it was just, it, it, like you said, uh, people suck. That's my thesis. That, I'm going to write that thesis one day when I become a PhD. Um, but anyway, Mm -hmm. so uh, that's late 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, is when six uh, veterans of the Confederate Army come together to uh, form the Ku Klux Klan. And this is a group of, you know, you have these, you know, uh, well-to-do, well-educated young men. Uh
um, these attacks are specifically meant to stop the vote. And actually, um, in many counties, they they successfully prevented black people from casting even a single vote. Um, and those are particularly counties with significant black populations, which I mean, to me, that's just that's an illicit election. That's not a real election if most. Yeah, but you, again, you vote. see the patterns, right? Yeah, yeah. That camarade about, you know, a minority could be any minority being indolent and whatever, a disadvantaged minority being indolent and this and that. Exactly. So that's a standard trope that today, you know, welfare queen and all of that. And then globally speaking, that happens. And then this whole thing about elections in the U.S. and how people come out and take positions around an election. I mean, there's a straight line from that to, you know, they're sending us our worst. And some of them, I'm sure, are good people. Yeah, yeah. No, and so, um, what's it called? Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, despite all that, Grant wins. And so, like, the Klan ends up retreating at this point. And Bedford Forrest, uh, you know, d you know, dissolves the Klan. And he says, oh, you know, we were hijacked by rogue elements, which kind of reminded mm -hmm. me of, like, recently there were some headlines about Mitch McConnell referring to January 6th as a violent insurrection. Um, mm -hmm. Like, and just in general, you've seen more and more Republican leaders denounce January 6th when before they were either refusing to denounce it or they were endorsing it. It just reminded me of that, that, okay, now you're going to pretend like your whole movement, these guys are just some small group when th they are your base, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, They're denouncing it, though, because it, is it didn't last week, uh, a lot of them tried to call it uh, legal, what is it, political discourse or something? Yeah, they did. And then they tried to walk that back, actually. They also tried to, that, that, thank you for reminding me of that. They also tried to walk yeah, that back. Yeah, there was a backlash against that. So. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, the history is a poem. Anyway, so, um, mm -hmm. so you have, um, uh, actually, so you, do you guys see um, on this paper, you page, do you see this cartoon here? Which one? There's a cartoon on this, um, it's page 15 on the report. Um, Abu, if you could describe the cartoon. Um, I, I don't have the report open right now. You should. You, All right. No, I mean, I, I don't have page numbers, it's my problem. All right, well, actually, yeah, I have it printed out, my bad. Basically, at the, basically at the report, what we're talking about under um, Colfax, it's under the Colfax, Louisiana, which I'll get to in a mm, second. Right. Um, but we have... Uh, You're talking about the dead guy lying yeah. there with the one word less thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, if you could just describe that. Well, basically, it's a sketch of a, a black person, a man, lying dead at the feet of some wall chalk, and it said "Negro killed." Seymour. Um, it says "Negro killed." It says "Seymour ratification," and the bottom it says "quote unquote one vote less." Yeah. Richmond Whig. So apparently, this was a cartoon being run in the Richmond Whig, some newspaper. Yeah. And it kind of showing that that's basically that's what the purpose of all these killings were. Um, so, you know, you had. Uh, um, so, yeah. So just to, real quick, I wanted to go back to, you know, there's a little thing about Colfax, Indiana here um, that basically this is the Colfax is a is a part of Grant Parish in central Louisiana. And so in 1872, um, you know, they finally basically, um, you know, after years of having uh, former Confederates. Uh, you know, undermining, um, you know, the officials or whatever. We had several Democratic candidates won an election that was considered as fraudulent uh, because we had, you know, I guess, I don't know exactly what the details were, but after years of, um, f uh, you know, trying to constantly undermine the black progressive Republicans, they finally managed to steal an election. And so in response, you had these black protesters um, that staged, they, they went to the town courthouse and they occupied it peacefully. 
Um, and then several weeks later, uh, we have um, like a, about 140 white people surrounded the courthouse. And this is the first week of April 1873. Um, they end up uh, getting in these skirmishes um, with these, uh, these groups uh, of black protesters, and we have a lot of deaths. And then after that, on Easter Sunday, 300 whites attacked the courthouse, um, and three of them were killed in the assault. Uh, and they end up outnumbering the black the black forces who are they end up waving white flags and surrender, but they still get attacked. And so you have um, a lot of unarmed black men hiding in the courthouse or, or trying to run and they end up being shot and killed. And approximately 50 black people um, uh, who survived were taken prisoner and executed later that evening. And so we have as many as 150 black people killed, and it was described as the bloodiest single act of carnage in all of uh, Reconstruction. Um, and the white people who, who uh, perpetrated this ended up facing no consequences because the Supreme Court dismissed all federal charges against them. And the reason uh, that this is included in the report is because um, the local narrative in Colfax, Louisiana, to this day, you know, praises this event. In, in 1921, the town put up a memorial to those three white people that died, um, memorializing them as heroes who fell fighting for white supremacy. It literally says that. And then in 1950, they put an, a monument at the old courthouse that says, on this site occurred the Colfax riot in which three white men and 150 Negroes were slain. This event on April 13th, 1873, marked the end of carpetbag misrule in the South. Um, and as, as of the, this report, which I think came out in 2017, that is still there, um, standing there, uh, despite the fact that this is this was a massacre meant to stop uh, black people from having their vote heard. Um, but yeah, um, so so yeah, so, uh, you know, um, moving on, um, uh, Abu, what, are you, what, what are your thoughts so far? What do you think of all that? Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, I'm still kind of trying to uh, understand you know how you know the the civil war ended with the you know the slavery was supposed to end and then they uh, i guess maybe partly because andrew johnson succeeded uh, uh, you know lincoln that that whole process got derailed i mean very successfully derailed and uh, almost reversed to the point where you know the conditions of the you know the freed slaves were not were only slightly better they were no longer slaves but they were not considered citizens at, at some, you know, at some point, like literally declared as, you know, or, or, you know, yeah, declared as non-citizens or that they were not citizens. They didn't have the right to vote. They didn't, you know, so it, it kind yeah, of, so I... the whole, the whole noble sort of uh, uh, cause sort of got hijacked yeah. and re derailed. Yeah, yeah, no, and so um, I, 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 not to go on my usual rant, but basically, uh, they no longer had slavery, but they did still have capitalism. So you know, basically, <laughs> what what happened was, you know, they still, in, you know, uh, the report says that you know a lot of these right groups took up the cause of restoring labor discipline. So you had vigilantes that would go and you know any black freed freedmen who argued with their employer, who or left a plantation where they had a contract or showed any kind of economic success, they would end up getting whipped or lynched. And um, basic and and also they started using the excuse of of uh, black men being perceived as you know rapists of white women, and that that came up a lot. So routinely, black men would get routinely uh, fabricated accusations 
um, often extrapolated from minor violations, it says. Um, it's like if they paid a compliment to a white woman, they showed any romantic interest in a white woman, uh, they were cohabitating with a white woman. Um, and so, you know, it says here that white mobs, I'm just going to read this bit here, white mobs regularly attack black men accused of sexual crimes. And historians estimate that at least 400 African-Americans were lynched between 1868 and 1871. That's a span of three years. Uh, whites also sought retribution for alleged rapes by targeting entire black communities with violent public and sexualized attacks, including for, uh, forcing victim, uh, uh, victims to strip, binding them in compromising positions, and whipping their genitals, widespread rape of black women, sometimes in front of their families, and general mutilation and castration. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was worse than just not even having slavery anymore. It was like retribution. Right, and trying to keep them in their place. In their place, exactly, exactly. So, you know, and so by 1870, these, you know, these state governments and the Reconstruction, they were like powerless to stop these counter-revolutions. Like they needed federal aid. And so initially, uh, President Grant gave them federal aid. Um, and Congress passes, um, there's the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 71, and then the Ku Klux Klan Act of, uh, of 71, 1871. And th these, basically these laws actually gave, um, you know, individuals the ability to go to federal court for help uh, when they were having their civil rights violated. And it gave the federal government, you know, the power to prosecute civil rights violations. However, so this is kind of why it doesn't go anywhere that in the southern states, again, states rights pops up. And, you know, um, you know, uh, the reconstruction governments at the state level um, would kind of refuse to kind of they, they basically worked against that in every way possible. So, um, you know, we have uh, basically these um how do you put it basically there you know the basically there's this guy by the name of john archibald campbell who was a former confederate um and he was super against all of this reconstruction right and so he um he took it to he went to the supreme court the supreme court basically starts to is the reason that we got rid of all what what the the report refers to as the legal architecture of reconstruction and mm. john archibald campbell he kind of came up with this um, this idea that basically at the time in Louisiana, um, there were these regulations um, that the legislator was putting in uh, that put all the New Orleans slaughterhouses into one location outside the city. So Campbell sees this and he, he decides to put in a suit on behalf of this group of white butchers arguing that um, this law uh, forbidding these slaughterhouses within city limits interfered with their 13th Amendment rights uh, because it was in violation of the ban on slavery and it also um, infringed on their 14th Amendment privileges and immunities clause. And so um, basically he was using this to kind of just literally this one case he was using to just tear apart reconstruction and it was a lose-lose case for civil rights because if he wins this case it meant that the courts would extend the reconstruction amendments um to protect the economic interests of white people as well which would completely undermine their purpose but if he loses then the power of the amendments would be destroyed as well um so and so this case and a lot of others uh became consolidated as the slaughterhouse cases. And so um, the report mentions that prior to 1865, the Supreme Court only struck down two congressional acts as unconstitutional. But then from 1865 until 1872, which is what, like seven years, they struck down 12 different congressional acts. And this slaughterhouse cases made it 13. So it was, it was literally, it was the Supreme Court actually that went in and, and you know, 
See, that's a rather interesting thing. I was thinking about that, especially nowadays, we kind of have that roles reversed, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, you know, the whole three branches of government thinks that if one branch has been captured by one ideology, then they can push back and undo other things, right? Because yeah. in this day and age, we think, or, you know, people like me want to think of the Constitution and legal process as the last, you know, sort of, bulwark against uh majoritarian rule and things like that right yeah, see people like me think it's all it all needs to be rewritten because it's all bullshit yeah no we and we do need to have it rewritten but there are times when for example you know civil rights and this and that but and congress was especially under republican rules were, was trying to take advantage of that but and maybe we are heading back to that situation now again the parallel where the Supreme Court is captured by white supremacism, supremacists and supremacism, while Congress is trying to do the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. And then the presidency becomes a football. Right, yeah. Yeah, so so basically, um, then, uh, so yeah, so th this decision basically in 1872, um, you know, uh, the court basically found that um, this 14th Amendment uh, you know, protected just only protected their privileges and immunities uh, conferred by citizenship, which was, uh, you know, that's a very narrow category. And they found that that was irrelevant to the struggles um, that Southern black people were facing. And so they basically and they said that basically any rights that were derived from a person's state citizenship could only be enforced by the state court. And the state court was dominated by, you know, the white the white ruling class and, and the state court, you know, state governments really especially in the south obviously were really hostile to interests of black people and and that's basically um you know what what it says here in, in the, the in the report is that the decision eviscerated um the practical impact of the reconstruction amendments by drastically limiting freedmen's ability to enforce their right in federal court the only forum where they stood a chance of a fair hearing so abu i don't know if that answers your question that that's basically how and why they ended up kind of dialing it back that they they systematically basically made it so that no like that we're gonna create this put this in a situation where you can't even get those rights that we supposedly gave you right, right. and in that that was a push and pull but there's another twist coming in that story right mm -hmm. with so, the new you know with the whole deal so has president at this point is is this jim crow and the segregation and all of that or does that come no, later not that, yet later we're still dealing we're still dealing with the systemic, like, you know, dismemberment of Reconstruction. Jim Crow comes, like, right after this, basically. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, basically, so that Colfax massacre, uh, it also talks about that Colfax massacre that I mentioned earlier. Um, they did try, uh, you know, the U.S. attorney, attorney in uh, Louisiana did try to bring federal charges under the Enforcement Act because the Enforcement Act said that it's a federal crime to conspire to deprive a citizen of their rights. Um, and, and But... Uh, and even and they even went to the extent of actually um, charging them with capital offenses, like the death penalty. But in in, st in spite of the fact that they were able to bring this to court, they even had a lot of evidence. One of the defendants of that Colfax massacre was acquitted, and then the jurors failed to reach a verdict against any of the others. So even when they brought it to court, we still had the issue of the fact that these juries were like all white, you know. Mm -hmm. Um. So. So yeah. So uh. Basically, um, you know, you 
you know, eventually then like, you know, they go, they start to go for retrial or whatever, right? For that one. And this is important. So they try to go for retrial for that. Um, you know, but then in the end, the, uh, the judge ended up ruling that this enforcement act that they were using, um, the, 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 the defense actually said that that's unconstitutional as applied to private persons. Uh, basically that you can't use the enforcement act against private, you know, uh, against private people attacking you. That's only yeah. for against the state. And so the, the judge actually ended up ruling that the enforcement act itself was unconstitutional and dismissed all these indictments basically. Um, and so, you know, here, here we have, again, at, at, at that level, these judges are basically just taking down un undoing all these acts that we finally have passed right right um, yeah so uh and so th th this brings up an interesting point about basically private actors versus state actors that i i think one time we had a discussion about is that like when reality mm. is that lynching or you know what is and what isn't lynching um but yeah i don't know Abu, if you had anything to say about that no i mean the whole lynching thing uh you know i was i was trying to sort of clarify that the terror lynching versus uh, the other stuff, but I mean, the, I guess the lynching of black, uh, you know, men and young men, and some in some cases young boys, was just basically to strike terror into the blacks and keep them. Yeah. In the women, women were lynched too, and we'll get into a couple examples of that as well. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, but mainly it was boys, and then they would use some pretext, like you said, K you know, someone was blamed of, of, of for whistling at a white woman or somebody was seen talking to her. Yep. Hurting, yep. And it was just basically to, I mean, a lot of them were, were not guilty of anything. They were just, just you know, they used it in, as, as an excuse. Yep. So this... Yeah, no, but see, that there's two layers there. One is the fact that there was no crime and people were getting <clears throat> upset. Then there is the fact that they're taking the law into their own hands and that itself is an illegal act, right? Yep, yep. So th this decision was called United States v. Uh, Creekshank, which I think I'm saying that right, but it reminds me of Crookshanks from Harry Potter. But this I believe the word is the same. It is Crookshank. Creekshank, yeah. So it decided March 27th, 1876. And that's basically, um, you know, the court deciding that this 14th Amendment only applies to this, you know, protections against the state. And so this completely eviscerates the Enforcement Act. And um, as the report says, African-Americans in the South were left to be were, were to be left at the mercy of white terrorists so long as the terrorists were private actors. Um, and so as a result, the Justice Department ends up dropping. There's like in Mississippi alone, they dropped 179 prosecutions based on the Enforcement Act. And so violence just spreads and you have more and more attacks on black people in the South in broad daylight, men not bothering to disguise themselves or anything at all, you know. Um, so, so you know, it says here that, you know, uh, racial terrorism and intimidation of African-Americans became characteristic of Southern democracy during the 1870s. Um, and so they even um, there was a proposal to in Georgia, the, the issue was so bad that in Georgia, there was actually a proposal to discipline, um, you know, the state of Georgia in general, uh, you know, for this violence and the corruption around their election around that time. And they, there ended up being a five day filibuster in the Senate. Um, and, you know, so that, that filibuster defeated it in the north, you know, you know, the support for federal intervention starts going down. And then finally, in 1872, Congress ends up returning those full civil rights to Confederate leaders and restores their eligibility to hold public office. And again, I had no idea they even had lost mm. that ability, but literally it was given back to them. I mean, that's like a tacit, like, you know what, never mind, let's go back to white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that's really where you see, you know, reconstruction being undone. 
Yeah, yeah, that that I think was a huge one. Um, and and so it was called the Amnesty Act, and there was this one congressman, Jefferson Long. He he was a black congressman. He was Georgia's first black representative in Congress, elected in eighteen seventy. He was born a slave, and he literally he actually he actually said to the House he he spoke up against amnesty, and he he said you know like you know these I'm not gonna read his whole thing, but he said you know these are these disloyal people still hate this government, you know, and and loyal men you know are, are scared to even you know carry the uh, stars and stripes through our streets because of them. And then he says, th this is a quote from him, as he's, he's talking to the Speaker of, 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 of the House, he says, as a man raised as a slave, my mother a slave before me and my ancestry slaves as far back as I can trace them. If this house removes the disabilities of disloyal men by modifying the test oath, I venture to prophecy you will again have trouble from the very same men who gave you trouble before. Um, and I, I mean, those are <laughs> haunting words because they, they did not listen and, and he called it basically. Um, so basically reconstruction hasn't even ended yet. And we have Confederate veterans, you know, able to use political control over this uh, Southern governments. So, you know, we're no, not in some ways, what you would say is that is why reconstruction ended, right? This is yeah, what yeah. caused that because they yeah, could oh, now. Yeah, you're it. right. I'm saying before the official end, but you're right. This is what causes the end. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean. It, this yeah. is this is a step along the way of undoing yeah. reconstruction, not just yeah. yeah. So then, so then, you know, and there's another interesting thing here. So there's this guy, James L. Kemper. He was a former Confederate general, and he gets inaugurated as governor of Virginia in 1874. And he delivers uh, an address to the General Assembly, literally outlining, uh, you know, his white supremacist regime. And he literally says, OK, now, like, we've decided, like, let all of, like, you know, let it be understood that all this stuff is settled. And he literally says social equality of the races is a settled impossibility. And he says, let it be understood of all that any organized attempt on the part of the weaker and relatively diminishing race to dominate the domestic governments is the wildest chimera of political insanity. He literally declares it political insanity to try and 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 you know give black people rights. And this is the governor of, of Virginia saying this to his ent entire general assembly. Um, and then you have you know a you know a Confederate colonel James Milton Smith. He becomes governor of Georgia in 1872. He has similar views. He does an interview where he he his 46 percent of his constituents in Georgia were black. And he literally talking to the Atlanta Journal Constitution, who is this publication. He says that oh yeah you know loss of the slaves was a severe blow to the South. Still we should be just as well off without them were the Negro race less indolent and unreliable. And he, you know, calls them idle and thriftless. And, you know, he, he says, oh, black people just depend on white people for everything. And it, it would take a century of education, um, to, you know, to bring them up to the standard that, you know, they could be useful members of society. So uh, officially we have these these governors actually saying all this publicly. This is how far we've come in, in just a decade from having like a more progressive Congress to so basically, this is a political reality now that we're at. Um, right. And so my point on that also is, you know, this kind of argument, oh, it will take this long to do that. The problem is you can interpret it both ways. You could say, oh, these guys are no good. Or you could say, yeah, they've been so disadvantaged. We need to spend a century helping them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so then, so basically, actually, in 1875, um, Charles Sumner was, he was a very progressive senator. He actually did pass a Civil Rights Act that mandated desegregation. It was supposed to get, you know, put criminal penalties for racial discrimination, jury selection. But then that Crookshank uh, decision uh, made that basically it unenforceable. And so then in 1883, the Supreme Court actually declares this Civil Rights Act unconstitutional. 
So again, we're at the Supreme Court level. Um, uh, yeah, and just to be sure, we're talking about the Civil Rights Act in the 1800s. 1875, <laughs> right. So like we could have had a Civil Rights Act sooner. We did have a Civil Rights Act sooner. We did but have it. There's no, there's no discussion of who these justices were. No, there isn't. That's and that's a good point. And I mean, there's so much information here. I'm very curious as to who they were. But and then right, and then it says next decade we have Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the whole separate but equal. So we go from having in 1875 uh, the Civil Rights Act, and then like you know, then we have Plessy versus Ferguson, just like you know, 15, 20 years later. Um, you know, it's just like a like a dizzying speed of of backpedaling. It almost feels like. Um, and okay, this part made me mad. I don't know if you guys um, saw this, but so President Grant, who again was the hero of the Civil War, won for the North and everything. Um, you know, even, you know, we have him on our money. Some people try to say that, you know, I think he's kind of painted in a positive light because he did uh, defeat the Confederates. Um, but basically, Pretty good general, uh, yeah. Yeah, things got so violent in the South at this point that the Mississippi governor, Adelbert Ames, actually asked federal troops to come in and, and suppress the violence, the racial violence that was going on. And, and Grant sends him a letter telling him to broker the peace. They literally refer to it as an exasperated letter. And he tells him, okay, you need to go make peace between the state militia and these white mobs. And he wrote that the whole public are tired out with these annual autumnal outbreaks in the South. Like his whole attitude is just like, oh, could you just handle it yourself? Like, I can't be bothered. Um, and this is literally like, I mean, pogroms happening. And the president of the United States is like, nah, it's not important for me to deal with. Um, but yeah. So uh, I think this is the official end of the uh, reconstruction that we're talking about. Um, I, we learned in school, I learned about it as the Compromise of 1877. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I've heard the name, the term. Yeah. So basically. But Sorry. basically, so, you know, we're, we're having these brutal attacks happening all the time in Mississippi, throughout the South, et cetera. So there's a deadlock. The presidential election of 1876 uh, was between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Jam Samuel J. Tilden. And so there was a compromise between Congress and the Supreme Court where basically they agreed that Hayes could become president if Hayes promised to end Reconstruction. Um, and that was the formal end of Reconstruction. So Hayes takes office... And when I heard that, that kind of shocked me. Yeah, within two months, uh, he basically ends the federal troops' role in, in, in Southern politics. This part I did learn about in, in school, um, but we kind of just, it was kind of like, oh, this is what happened. He constructed and it. Like, we didn't talk about how, what that meant. We didn't talk about how, I mean, right here, it says that, like, in the words of Henry Adams, a black man living in Louisiana at the time, the whole South, every state in the South, had got into the hands of the very men that held us as slaves. Um and yeah, so it's a hundred percent just reversal, and and that's not how I was taught that in school in the north. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, if I, I know most people don't get it, but we kind of have the feel that there was something called Reconstruction, mm -hmm. and then it ended. It didn't quite. If you're paying attention, especially maybe it's the sensitivity thing. You know, privileged folks might not notice that completely, but like you said, you noticed that a compromise was made. No, and yeah. We're taught in school we were literally taught that term compromise of 1877 mm. uh that was like a test question you know uh what happened but the answer was not like oh it, it you know it ended you know it basically gave the south back to white supremacists the answer was that oh rutherford, rutherford b hayes could be president and then he would formally end reconstruction and this. i don't even remember if we even said oh he would pull troops out i think he just said he would pull like the the national government the federal government out of the south 
Yeah, no, and the thing that we don't learn is that up to that point, the troops were still in the South. Yeah. That's the part I kind of, yeah. it becomes startling that they were still trying to fix the South at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, and so like earlier I was talking about sharecropping and I mentioned how it reminded me of like, you know, feudalism and, and, and it is. Stuff. And, and, and so it says that, like, you know, uh, Governor Ames of Mississippi, he literally, his prediction was they are to be returned to a condition of serfdom, an era of second slavery. And that is absolutely... It is serfdom. It is the definition of serfdom. I mean, it's, it, we call it sharecropping because that's a technical term in the U.S., but, right. no, but it's you being a serf on someone else's land. Yeah. No, yeah. So this formal end of, that is what Ames said at the formal end. He explicitly said that this is what's happening now. Um. So then, you know, uh, basically, uh, and then from there, you know, we have 1890, the Mississippi Constitutional Convention, um, all the delegations, uh, but, uh, but except for one were white. And so they intentionally started purging black people from the voter rolls. That was like their top priority at that convention. Um, and then even and then six years later, the Mississippi Supreme Court even said like, yeah, it is it is in the highest degree improbable that there was not a consistent controlling directing purpose governing the convention. Uh, you know, and, and they basically said that, you know, th this con the convention swept the circle of expedience to obstruct the exercise of the franchise by the Negro race. Like this is a Mississippi Supreme Court saying that, yes, this convention literally sat there and made sure that the that the black mm -hmm. man no longer have the vote. And even then, even in this in this very um, uh, acknowledgement that's written by the Supreme Court, they still refer to the um, black people as a patient, docile people, but careless, landless, and migratory within narrow limits, without forethought yeah. and its criminal members. I mean, given that's, other, a, that's the definition. Other furtive offensives than to the robust crimes of the whites. Right, and that's the definition of it's a definition of patronization, patronizing mm -hmm. to folks. Mm -hmm. And on the other thing, it's uh, he's actually admitting that black folks aren't as criminal as white folks. Right? Yeah, so <laughs> I think restrained from the confederal constitution from discriminating, recognizing against the race, the convention discriminated against the, its characteristics and the offenses to which its weaker members were prone. So they're literally saying that you know, so I mean, they they couldn't. It's not even saying that oh they didn't. They're saying they couldn't discriminate against on racial basis so they just yep. discriminated on on you know the characteristics and the and the behavior which is what black people do anyway and it's just wild to no, me but the characteristic see the thing is also when i was reading that i was very clear about this is exactly what they're trying to do with voting rights today oh for sure they're, they're just less right? about it so they're not this is a very good description of how they're going about doing it yeah, they're, they're, and they just don't literally hear it. There's so much honesty about it because they don't see, they're like, yeah, this is how it goes. But today they have to kind of keep it quiet. So yeah, and so they, right around then, so 1901, Alabama rewrites its constitution. Um, and then this this one lawyer, uh, John Knox, uh, he's president of the Constitutional Convention. He literally says, opening the convention, that you know the, the reason we're doing this is to uh, establish white supremacy in the state. He literally comes out and just says that. Today, we have the same thing happening, but they don't come out and mm -hmm. um, See, it's more difficult to say that, right? They couldn't get away with saying that. Yeah, so right. They'd... But what's wild to me is how much the other side won't say it. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. It's, again, even back then, it was both sides yeah. doing about, the, in effect, the same thing, right? I mean, we're just talking about Biden. For most of his career, Biden was not an activist. For no, no, he, he was pu pushing white supremacist stuff, for sure. Um, 
but yeah and so and so knox even said he so he says you know we, we we're right what we're gonna do here with this constitution is we're gonna establish a white supremacist states and he says we have to do it by law not by force or fraud and so then you see between 1885 to 1908 abu all 11 former confederate states rewrote their constitutions and they wrote in about restricting voting rights with you know having these literally literacy tests these poll taxes felon disenfranchisement um and then on top of that also they were banning interracial marriage and integrated public education and all that but this is basically where they end up writing in explicitly saying the very laws that we're we talk about today we're, we're talking about the voting rights act and everything mm -hmm. so all, all of these issues about like you know the the you know these un, unnecessary literacy tests that we want to take apart and republicans are defending if you go back in history when they were written into the constitution the people writing them in said yeah we're writing this in because we like white supremacy and and now we see republicans being like no no no, no you can't take that out and it's like but but like, you know, like that, that's why it's just so dangerous that so many people don't know this history because the history says it right, right there. Right. And and that's important to know because then it becomes a no brainer about opposing. And, and no, exactly. A no brainer. It, it is. It's fact. I mean, it is fact that these it is literally written down on the record that this is meant to enforce white supremacy. Uh, there's no you can't argue that. Um, so then, yeah, so then, uh, convict leasing, so I guess similar to sharecropping, and again, um, uh, I've mentioned this to you guys before, but you guys really, really have to watch Ava DuVernay's 13th, uh, it won an Oscar, not that the Oscars mean anything, but it definitely earned that Oscar, um, uh, for 13th, which 13th talks about the 13th Amendment, and how, you know, there's that clause in there, except for punishment of a, as a crime, that, you know, you can still enslave someone if, if they're being punished, so. It's it, on Netflix, right? Yeah, yeah, it's on Netflix. So it I says here, conflict it, leasing, yeah. uh, the practice of selling the labor of state and local prisoners to private interest for state profit, utilize the criminal justice system to effectuate the economic exploitation and political disempowerment of black people. Um, so this is where we see that state legislatures pass these black codes, which are these discriminatory laws um, that they started creating new criminal offenses like loitering. Loitering was not really a crime before this vagrancy. Um, honestly, I heard someone use an example today that like oh, even certain things like like having something hanging from your, your rear view mirror. There are certain laws that are honestly just used to like in effect, yeah. they're just used to persecute and arrest and, and punish black people. Right. Um, and the vagrancy thing actually also poor white people. The vagrancy thing yeah. is in effect today. And this whole thing about, of course, I live in the West Coast where there's been a lot of pushback and during uh, the winters and all now this, the cities around us actually help people do yeah. that. Help people by putting up resources, especially during COVID, putting up porta parties and things like that. But otherwise, the fact that you can't go to sleep on a bench in a public park comes straight out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so because of this, we have like, you know, the idea of convict leasing, because now, um, you know, it, you can't enslave people anymore. But that loophole in the 13th Amendment that, you know, you can, um, you know, you, basically you're prohibiting slavery and involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime. They start saying, OK, fine, we'll start convicting all these black people of crime. And then we have mass arrest, mass incarceration of black people that starts here. It's still going on now. Um, and then, you know, and again, capitalism, right? You have these private lease contracts being used to, you, you okay, know. So here I'm, I'm going to have to, because you've said this a couple of times. What? The point is, 
it's not just like we were talking about racialized chattel slavery the other day, and I think that phrase comes up in this report. This is racialized capitalism. It's not just capitalism. Well, right? that's the thing is that yeah, and so that's the thing, and, I, and I've heard a lot of socialists say this, and it's true is that like capitalism is racist. I mean, you 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 can't be anti-capitalist and not be. Anti no, but see, I can make the same argument you've heard me make it about socialism being classist too. You just have different people they slot in those classes. I mean, well, yeah, you can make that argument about authoritarianism, <laughs> right? No, no, but, yeah. So my point is exactly that, that there is a layer in, in addition a, to capitalism here, right? It's the white America, supremacy. Right? And the... But and, and I think it says it later somewhere. I, I can't remember if it says it here in another article, but literally, I mean, no, it was in a different article. It was in one of the articles I sent you guys about the British Empire, that that's basically where capitalism starts, is with imperialism, is the way that they start profiting off these bodies. I mean, you know, that's the thing, and I, that's why I think these two are very interconnected, but I think that's a whole other podcast for us to argue over. That's a whole other discussion. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so then, yeah, so you see here, state like te Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, um, convict leasing starts spreading way throughout them uh, as early as 1866. Um, and so, whereas, like, you see white prisoners getting sentenced to the penitentiary, black prisoners will end up getting uh, leased out. And they not only they're again put in unsafe working conditions. They end up uh, facing really, really bad um, brutality when they try to resist or escape or even like you know do anything that they don't like, right? Um, so and actually, so it was it, it, this. This was uh, wild to me. I wanted to know what you guys thought of this. Um, that there was an 1877 report by the Hines County, Mississippi, uh, grand jury that they said they said that after six months after 204 convicts were released to this man named McDonald. 20 were dead, 19 had escaped, and 23 had been returned to the penitentiary, disabled, ill, and near death. Um, and this is just one example. Do you want to um, do you want to define or describe what um, convict leasing means? I mean, you kind of just mentioned that term. It's basically. Oh, so I guess I didn't explain it properly, but basically, uh, you're you're basically. Uh, um, the state prisoners, prisoners of this uh, local prison, state prisons are sold by the prisons uh, to private interests for profit. Basically, like they're selling them out. Like, here, here are our prisoners. You can use them as workers. And, and, then, the, and then the prisons make money off of that. They basically, right. basically, yeah, basically they call it now they don't even call it leasing. Now they will use words like the contracts for labor, labor contract, yada, yada. But basically you're leasing. And I don't know if you saw, um, if you if you have this open, there's a there's a photo here of four black men in these uh, old school prison uniforms. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and even today in the U.S., you can be driving down a highway and you have a bunch of convicts cleaning up stuff yeah, so, in this, several states. But I'm making a point here. This, if you notice, they're chained together with a chain. That's where that term. Right. And that's the difference between. Actually, I I, I don't know whether some of them might be chained even to this day, but yeah. Yeah, so that that's where the whole chain gang comes from, right? Like yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where the word, word chain there's, there's gang comes some, from. You know, uh, old school songs, uh, you know, singing about exactly this, um, like you know, some soul singers and stuff. Yeah. So, um, and so actually, there's one historian. This is an interesting quote from a historian, David Oshinsky. He said that before conflict leasing officially ended, a generation of black prisoners would suffer and die under conditions far worse than anything they had ever experienced as slaves. Um, and, 
And that's, well, yeah, that phrase, I don't know, because slavery also had a lot of... Yeah, know. I mean, it, it was just an interesting... I, I'm sure a lot of people would argue with that, but it was an interesting... and it was Yeah, I, and, and my argument wouldn't even be that this is bad or that is bad. I'll say just different things were happening, but yeah. to say that this was worse than that is just... Yeah, so conv convict leasing is basically like, this is the first way that we can see after construction, like convict leasing and, and sharecropping to some extent, that this is the way that like, we no longer have slavery, but the criminal justice system would become the, you know, the main institution by which we are keeping white supremacy and racial domination of black people in America. And this is how, you know, you start seeing excessive punishment and abuse of, uh, you know, black people and, and people of color in general uh, by the state. Um, right. And nowadays people don't see that connection. Most people don't see that connection, right? It is when you get into this history and how it came about that it starts to become clear, right? You know, and also that kind of argument that you make sometimes about the, you know, the police in this country basically just being an outgrowth of uh, slave bounty hunting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's a technical phrase for it. I'm using bounty hunting metaphorically, right? Uh, yeah, slave. So, slave. <laughs> I think that's a technical phrase. What's the word? Slave catchers. I mean, slave in, the catchers, South, right. in the South, a lot of police departments, that's how they started. Um, but yeah, so uh, you were asking about Jim Crow. So this is where Jim Crow comes in, right? So uh, do you know where, where the term Jim Crow comes from, Apu? No, I, 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 uh, yeah, so I find that that weird. Did... I always, I always thought this was really weird that we would just like literally on an official level they're referred to as Jim Crow laws. But so initially it referred to a um, there's a style of minstrel show where um, white performers would you know dress up in blackface and and kind of make fun of uh, black people for entertainment. Right. And that's where the phrase black phrase uh, black yeah, face yeah. comes from. Right? Yeah, yeah. And Jim Crow was I think a character in, involved in that. And so by yeah. 1980 they were using this term to describe. Um, 1880. And the quote here is that subordination and separation of black people in the South, much of it codified and much of it still enforced by custom habit and violence. So some of this is, you know, through law, Jim Crow laws, and then some of it is also kind of like unstated. But, um, you know, you have you have, uh, you know, everything is segregated. Um, schools are segregated. Hospitals are segregated. Workplaces are segregated. Uh, interracial marriage is against the law um, and, and even the most mundane and, and small things. So just to um, kind of uh, we're kind of going towards the end here but these i wanted to know what you guys thought of some of these examples here but so it says here that like so example in south carolina in 1970 17 they had a law that like you know they had to have separate entrances and ticket booths at certain like tent events and then in 19 right. in the workplace you know textile mills and stuff the every stage of employment you know uh entering entering exiting stairwells tools was all separate for black and white people um interracial pool rooms like where you were playing billiards were um in 1925 uh they they had segregated them as well um and then you could no longer by 1910 um you could no longer uh place you know a white kid could no longer be adopted or put in custody of a black person um, streetcars in Florida were segregated. Uh, you know, actually, I actually wrote about some of this um, for healthcare. Um, we actually ended up writing a, a, a paper for one. My, I, I took a course about race and ethnicity in the United States, and I wrote about basically how Medicare for all is needed for racial equity. And I did do some of this research about how in Alabama, a white nurse couldn't even treat a black male patient. Um, and in the hospital entrances in Mississippi were separate. And I, I can't remember if it was Alabama or elsewhere, but there were some states where wards were separate. Like, you know, you had the wards for white people and then there was one separate ward for black people where literally, and it didn't matter. You could have a person with tuberculosis next to a woman giving birth. 
like it didn't matter all the black people had to be in this one small ward next to each other and it was like obviously terrible uh you know conditions um and so you know and then in and to kind of illustrate the point of like how the public saw it was you know this there's an anecdote in here about how there was a, a white woman and a black uh, man were arrested in atlanta in 1901 uh because they were seen together on the street and instead of being upset about the law the white woman was upset that they accused her of this she was like oh you know i've never been so insulted that you would accuse me and arrest me for talking to a black man how dare you um, you know, yeah, no, I, actually, the way I interpreted that specific thing was that it seemed like she was not so much offended that she was accused of that. The fact that she could be at all uh, the one being arrested. Right? Yeah, no, I, I was offended I, at the fact that how can you even believe that I would be talking to a black person? No, yeah. I don't. They, they, to me, yes, it didn't that's, like, that's what she was saying. I, I told him I was a southern born woman and his insinuations were an insult. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the thing you were asking, what do we think about this? The thing I, you know, that hits me and needs to be pointed out is that for a lot of us, we think of the 20th century as modern and the 19th century as old. But a lot of this Jim Crow laws were actually instituted in the 20th century. Yep. Like, you know, it, you misspoke at one point, you were saying 1980, it was 1880, but the law you mentioned was 1915-1924 and you look at the global situation basically we talk about apartheid South Africa basically some of us talk about uh you know segregation is apartheid but and and that's where these you know the, the discussions we something sometimes have about terminology is lynching an appropriate phrase for that is X appropriate for that, you know, genocide, lynching, words like that. But in this case, this was exactly the same system as apartheid. Oh, right. no, yeah, it is. Right? It, it is. sounds exactly like apartheid, yeah. No, no, it was not exactly like, it was the same thing. And so it was called segregation in the US, it was called apartheid in South Africa because that was came from one of their languages. Yeah. So I just want to put in a word for reminding people to maybe use that word or understand it that way and realize that in this country, we had the same system as apartheid South Africa, because we think of apartheid South Africa as being this, you know, uncivilized system or bad system out there. This country had that system. People, and the other thing, and I know I'm getting way ahead of my skis here. People like you and me could not apply for citizenship till 1948. Oh, yeah. Right? Between 48 and 52. This is not even about black folks. Right? In fact, black folks were born here. They were Americans. We were not. Till 48. The period between 48 to 52 is when they started undoing a lot of those laws. No, and so what's interesting that you say is that actually, uh, not only is this exactly uh, the same, but the apartheid government in South Africa, they learned from... Right. Yes. I mean, they literally, uh, these white, these social scientists studied the U.S. history and, and not only them, but so did, uh, so did Germany. I was, uh, I can't remember where it was, but I've read this yes. somewhere. Basically, um, mm -hmm. it literally, um, you know, Hitler had some of his people sent, he sent some of his scientists to the U.S. to go study Jim Crow. And they came back and some of them were even like, okay, here's what they did. And some of them even said, hey, I think this is going a little too far. And mm -hmm. Hitler didn't agree, obviously. Hitler was like, no, 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 tell me more. Tell me more. Write that down. Write that down. <laughs> but like even some of these Nazi social scientists were like, ah, I don't know if we should go as far as these Americans. Right, and yeah. We talked about that uh, some, another time. But yeah. yeah, they came back and they were like, yeah, that's, that's, that's too extreme.
Yeah, yeah. And, and and so, yeah, so you have, like, again, this whole total exclusion from institutions, public facilities, opportunities. You see this repeated against Black people in South Africa and against uh, Jewish people and other minorities in Germany. And that's explicitly a copy. It's not a coincidence. They're actually copying Jim Crow in right. the United and, Yeah. And then, of course, to make the other connection, the, the racial thing they and Mussolini were doing was then being copied by or studied by one or two groups in South Asia, right? Yeah. So th those interconnections are important to remember. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I I wish I, I, I clearly I need to read more. I wish I had more um, knowledge on some of this. But the every time every time I read about it, no matter where it is, the more I read about it, uh, I'm just astonished at how many how much it's explicitly, um, you know, uh, influenced by the United States. But there's this quote basically um, by uh, that historian um, uh, by the name of Litwack. I can't remember the first name, but um, basically, uh, you know, talking about how for this, you know, Jim Crow every day, Jim Crow was just a reminder, um, you know, for black people that, for the, the place that their inferiority, that the place that they were supposed to be shown in the, in their, in this world. Um, and, and so basically um, coming to the end of this part, uh, you know, the, the report mentions how like, you know, um, th this was a system that was fragile and fiercely guarded, right? Like on every level. I mean, this was constantly on the mind of a lot of politicians and stuff to keep this up. This was a very deliberate, uh, actively enforced uh, rule of law. And it says that uh, over the, so to end here, the last part of um, in, like uh, this report is, um, is over the century that this uh, racial caste system reigned, Perceived violations of the racial order were met with brutal violence targeted at black Americans and lynching was the weapon of choice. Um, and so, you know, next next time we'll get into the actual, um, you know, where lynching really kind of kicks in. But I think it was really important to kind of set up this whole, uh, you know, scene and, and to get into the history of it, because it's honestly context matters, I feel like, and, and seeing the, the parallels, especially where we are now, because I mean, this could also be a hint of where we could go. I mean, I don't think it's. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're just fear mongering, yada, yada, during the Trump era, during when Trump was in, in office. But I don't think, you know, we can't make the mistakes of just laying back too easily. Right. No, I don't agree with, you know, so I'll be in the middle. I'll say it's not just, you know, that argument people make about, oh, no, no, this is fear mongering. It'll never happen again. We're way beyond that. Yeah, at one level, in some ways we are. But in other ways, as we have been talking about in this whole conversation, there are some things that are exactly being repeated. You know, the anti-voting voting rights thing, the arguments being made, they're being repeated here in this country. I mean, the, the, the voting rights thing is just a continuation. It's just like that never yeah. ended, right? <laughs> yeah, no, but in some cases, we made progress. The Voting Rights Act was passed in the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. And it Did... is after the Supreme Court again, sort of threw it out that they're now being able to do even more on that, right? There were states that were still under federal supervision under the Voting Rights Act, right? There were certain states that couldn't pass voting rights laws or voting laws because themselves they had to be approved by the Federal Justice Department, right? Yeah, yeah. That has gone away. So I, I would say that, yes, to some extent, this is from another century, but to other extents, some of these things are not even being, like you said, some of them are just being continued. They're still here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of them are being brought back, which is the really scary part. Yeah. That they are being reinstituted. And then, of course, as brown folks and everything, I would like to, as I've been doing all along, point out that this is now being done in other countries. What is happening in India is about lynching. In fact, 
you know, we talk about whether some of the things that happen in India can be called lynching or not, but I think that became moot this week because mm -hmm. there was this, you know, graphic, if folks don't know this, there was this graphic about, you know, three or four people with beards and all hanging from a tree that was circulated by the Gujarat wing of the ruling, federal ruling party in India, right? And BJP, Gujarat yeah. being BJP, Gujarat. Uh, yeah, BJP Gujarat. And this is the state, just to point out to some audiences, this is the state of which the current prime minister was a chief minister at some point. Yeah. Very recently. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was held responsible for a massacre of Muslims, by the way. And but he was... I would say he was responsible. I don't know how much he would, you know, we managed to hold him responsible. They tried. They, there was an attempt. <laughs> well, yeah. there have been various I, things. He was, I, mean, I meant held, held uh, you know, metaphorically that the people said he was responsible mm -hmm. and he, he, you know, he, he was a persona non grata in America, right? He couldn't get a visa to America and that it was only reversed when he became prime minister. Mm -hmm. Right, of, and that doesn't need to, because that needs to be pointed out that that didn't happen because the U.S. government wanted it. Yeah. It well, was, it happened because there was a lot of, and I have to give them credit, Indian Americans that were agitating against that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. So, against. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there on this report because this is a long report. And the next part, it honestly it it, it gets bad. I mean, I think it's important. Um, uh, it, it it's it's very violent and it's very explicit. But I think it's important to to read and to know uh, of all the history because, as we'll get into next time, uh, generational trauma, uh, societal trauma is a real thing. Um, you know, and and I think we're gonna find a lot of parallels to the stuff that we've been through as as South Asians as well. But, I mean, just from that first part, Abu, what are your thoughts? Yeah, but, uh, you know, we've covered most of it. We've discussed it. And uh, uh, there were some, like I said in the beginning, there were some things that I, I didn't realize, I, you know, that I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, we're, you know, we're not, uh, there's certain things that, I mean, you either you are like an, uh, you know, either an African-American who has gone through this and who is aware of uh you know the the generational sort of trauma, and or, or you're a scholar who's who's studying these things. I mean, for me, you know, I was I, of course I'm neither one of those things, and um, and I haven't, you know, like you know, Sajil, you went to college in America, so you studied all these things, and you know, we went through me and Sabat, uh, you know, Sabat, of course, in a, in a lot of ways is self-taught, and you know, but you know, we didn't have all these studies. I mean, we, you know, like. And then, like me and Sabad, we did high school, and from high school you go straight into into university, like med medical school. In my case, you know, I didn't have college courses. I didn't do study liberal arts or. No, even in college, like I only just so much in here that I did not learn, and it's only because I took certain courses. Like, uh, like you did, you'd have you did have those courses, right? I yeah. never had anything like that. For example, Amar, Amar went to med school and everything. Amar did not learn this stuff in college. He tends to learn from me, or from YouTube videos that I show him, or some of the schoolwork, yeah. you know. Um, and that's why it's important. I don't know. I mean, stuff like the EJI report and stuff is so important. And, and there needs to be a way for us to get have these conversations more. I mean, I don't mean to be a killjoy at the party, but when someone makes a comment about like, oh, you know, why, why are, you know, making a comment about angry black women or something, then I, I can't shut up. I have to be like, well, hold up. First of all, that's first of all, it's a stereotype. Second of all, mm -hmm. 
here's a whole history. I mean, like, you know, of what, here's what you might be seeing. Here's what you might be seeing. Even if you, because some people like to be like, okay, well, look at statistics. What about, why is this happening in black neighborhoods? Or why is this happening in black families? And it's like, okay, you want to talk about statistics, but statistics still have a history. Numbers still have a context. Um, So you that know. five-minute video you sent about uh, African American mothers, Yeah, yes, yeah, so the post that that, that shook me. You know, it's like it, it came. You know, he was describing how maybe you can describe it better. Well, I think I think we'll get into that next uh the next uh uh page as well because I think lynching also kind of falls into that. But yeah, post traumatic slave syndrome and and I think there's a lot of connections to cuz what I say a lot, right? I have this conversation a lot about like, you know, we like I feel like a lot of Daisies are very self-hating and they're like, "Oh, Daisies do this, Pakistanis do that." And it's like, I mean, Uh, yeah there are some really problematic things in our community but look at look at what we've been through <laughs> you know uh then Right, and which is not even to justify, it's to explain so exactly that we can try to undo it, right? We're not even talking like about exactly. saying, oh, no, 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 we should just expect, accept it before, because people did it. No, no no we need yeah to talk about uh, what need, you know, like you keep advocating for therapy for a lot of people, right? So that, from yeah all of us, that it's, you know, there's a reason for this, we need to do something about it. Not, oh, there's a reason for this, don't talk about it. Yep. Uh, anyways, on that, I'm really tired. Uh, but and yeah, it's kind of late. So we, we'll end this discussion for today. And um, maybe we'll, I guess, reconvene um, tomorrow for the next one. Um, it, it's going to be a lot. So just warning ahead of time. Yeah, no, I was just skimming that. I haven't read ahead to that part, but <laughs> uh, to the point where we were going to discuss today. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, uh, yeah, because this uh, report is in like six sections, and the third one is about actual the actual lynching in America, right? That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. the tough part. All right, well, I got to go, but we'll talk soon, okay? Okay, beta. Take All right. care. Right, take care. Bye. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you're liking what you're hearing, please hit the subscribe button to keep up with new episodes. We'd also love it if you gave us a follow on Twitter at TweetMeBeta or Instagram at DoItForTheGramBeta. If you're not the social media type, you can shoot us a message at emailmebeta at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we really appreciate the support. Bye.